So I think the reason, uh, one reason I was interested in recording this episode is because we're, uh, could possibly be coming to the end of humanity. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 that's true. Um, but, well, I mean, we could cause the end of us, or are you saying, like, uh, I, you can see the near future where there's, there's uh, another evolution of Homo and we get left in the dust? Hmm. Which which, which are you saying, more, like the apocalypse or the <laughs> more of the apocalypse? Yes. What's <laughs> never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with Dakotas discover the wonder in the ordinary. often thought what the next species would be just because surely there is some evolutionary pressure um but i mean looking back through all of like the homo genus uh evolutions and everything and especially looking at kind of like the you know the term missing link is <laughs> it's a it's, misnomer. It's, it's a it's, misnomer. Yeah, it's 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 an intentional term to set you up to speak about evolution from a creationist perspective. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but the term too, I mean, depending on where you're looking, like if or where you're talking about, um like if you're nineteen twenties, you could say the missing link is but is, you know, uh these actually very recent kind of homo like ancestors. And then they get found and you're like, oh, okay, it's not a missing link. But now how do you get from this to this? But the ones between the Australopithecus and then like Homo genus, that they don't know. They haven't found like an an individual. But that's the thing with evolution is you never find the individual that switches right right there's not going to be this weird hybrid individual there was just the single hybrid perfect 50 50 per thing that then decided i'm gonna go this with this side of the coin for the future (laughs) yeah yeah i mean theoretically um so it is it is interesting and i was reading a paper on uh like apparently they had been thinking that there must have been something between Australopithecus, uh, which everyone I'm sure is a little familiar with. That's like the Lucy. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort uh, of first bipedal, upright-walking um, ape ancestor. Yeah, like like primarily bipedal. Yeah. Like six million years ago, uh, the ape ancestors started walking on two legs sometimes, and then by two million years ago, it was primarily two-legged. And it coincides with climate events that are happening on Earth, too, because you have like a 
in a very short time from a geological perspective, a cooling of the African continent. And it goes from being a much more lush, tree-filled, foresty type of environment to a more arid, plains, savanna-type environment in just a few hundred thousand years. And so animals that had adapted to be in the trees no longer had the trees anymore to to be protected by. So they had to quickly come up with other adaptations in order to survive on the savanna. Yeah. Which, and so that's like kind of the thing is there's, we've spoken about, you know, uh, the, obviously with the dinosaurs and everything, how impactful the movement of the plates and geographic changes and all that kind of stuff is. And it happens over such a long period of time that there is, it's, it is so gradual, like looking at the the actual definition of the genus homo is i don't know it's it's like they almost have to just be now talking about the genetics because now that technology's advanced so much like like you know a hundred years ago they had to say like well the brain case needs to be uh 600 cubic centimeters or more to be considered in the homo genus yeah yeah and then you look at like the australopithecus brain case and it's like you know it's smaller but it's not that much smaller so you can obviously see in between there was no you know there, there's no mutation from a 500 cc to a 600 cc brain case in one generation right that isn't something that would maybe be like detrimental like i you know that's the other thing too that i always find interesting with these fossils is the ones that you find could have been like you know a a genetic anomaly an almost. outlier yeah, yeah. Um, because you're already, you're, already, plenty more, you're obviously finding so few <laughs> there's not just yeah, a yeah. ton of them uh, the further back you go the fewer there are to find which <laughs> i was like reading an article on lucy too and you know you're just wondering like like obviously these things get um elevated it's weird because when people die now um nobody really like pays attention to them um so i'm sure at the time like lucy probably died and the other australopithecus um whatever species they were um we're just kind of like, oh, well, you know, that's what happens. <laughs> but I was reading that they think she probably like fell out of a tree and then suffered internal damage to her organs and then died. Mm-hmm. Because like there's the way that like uh, she has like broken bones. That's the way that you would have gone to like try to catch yourself before hitting the ground oh, falling yeah, out of yeah. a tree. Um, And there's other theories that like, the body was trampled or something, so that's why there's breaks right around the time of death. Mm-hmm. But and you still, can see like the death, and it doesn't heal. It never like did it the full healing because right, they died yeah. before. Yeah. Um. So it's kind of, it's like you know, was this the ancestor that was really bad at trees? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all we all have that uh, that uh, sudden jerk instinct that that we all still get even in our beds. 
when we roll over too quick and we jerk ourselves awake because we're afraid we're about to fall off of a branch. <laughs> Didn't you like fracture your elbow, like falling yeah. back or something, like going to catch yourself? Yeah, yeah. It got pinned yeah. back behind my arm. It sucked. It sucked. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't fracture your elbow. Like, I've fractured my forearm before and my wrist before, and that was way less of a hindrance to, to just normal movement. Like the elbow is just so inconvenient if you if you fuck that up, because <laughs> now you have to kind of have your arm bent and hugged to your chest all the time, and you can't like easily bathe. I don't know. Just don't break your elbow. Break your wrist. Break your forearm. Break your leg. Just not your elbow. <laughs> I did break my leg. I think I've told you about this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was um, it was difficult. Um, but my my mother in law currently, well, she broke her shoulder last week. Yes, last Thursday. So, and she's getting uh, consulted today with the doctor to see if she needs to have surgery on it. Mm. But um, she's been like, like leaning on the counter and just like look i can still move it <laughs> like she's supposed to be moving it so her arm doesn't like get frozen yeah yeah you don't uh, want it to stiffen up yeah um but yeah it's kind of i don't know i've never had an upper body i did separate a shoulder once well not like not a shoulder i separated in my ac joint in football i got like shoved from behind in a weird angle those are the worst ones when you like Cause I've fallen so many times skateboarding and everything, mm-hmm. um, that I know how to fall if I'm expecting it, but it's those unexpected, like where you get pinned and you can't roll yeah, <laughs> at yeah, all. Yeah, it's yeah. just like dragging on the ground. Um, but yeah, I was talking, <laughs> uh, I was talking with Miho about the, uh, sports medicine guy that we had, uh, at Geyer when I was like in football. Um, not a doctor, but made everyone call him Doc, which is already <laughs> an insight into that guy's mentality. Well, he works in medicine. You're, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so much so, they all made t-shirts that the back of it said, just put ice on it, well, which is not the, <laughs> the care that you're looking for. And uh, I like, you know, tore my uh, AC joint, or separated it, I guess, and... um my uncle is an orthopedic surgeon and he does like he's done some surgeries i think for like stars players but he was like the team doctor for the what's like the minor league team are they the tornadoes or there's the texas stars that operate in austin there's a bunch of like independent hockey teams that used to be around here if there, there was, was the one fort that... worth one Maybe Fort Worth. Um, and yeah, I think there is a Texas Tornadoes. They might have played up in like Plano. There's an ice cream. Yeah, up yeah, there. yeah. Well, he lived in Plano, so yeah. But he was like the team doctor for them, so like he was, you know, doing sports injury stuff all the time. So I just went to him. Um, and yeah, the the team doctor was so pissed that I <laughs> surpassed his knowledge. <laughs> like, he, you aren't going to know what to do. You don't even know my name. Like, what? You're getting a second opinion on me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't even go to see him. I just like, <laughs> I just held my arm the rest of practice and then immediately went to my uncle. Um, I recommend that, you know, before you're an adult, definitely have a family member that's an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to tie it back in, uh, 
one of my little tangents that I saw was uh, Neanderthals, not really that dumb. They had a lot of, in the archaeological record, shows that they uh, mended lots of broken bones, uh, had obviously had a lot of like medical interventions to deal with wounds that people got when they went hunting or fighting or whatever. So lots of evidence in their fossil record of like even just small breaks being healed, like broken fingers and stuff being healed, but then big stuff like uh, compound fractures in their legs and stuff being healed back together and like they were reset and they can see that the that was actually set and healed properly. So not stupid and they wouldn't just leave their people behind if they got a little injured. <laughs> <laughs> what was the um what was your what do you remember from like school learning about Neanderthals? I don't really remember too much, but Nothing. yeah, I don't remember them saying that they were very bright. Not like if anything, it was more a colloquial slight than we ever even actually talked about it in any science. Of course, I was going to like a religious school, (laughs) Christian school for most of my (laughs) science. So we didn't really touch on the evolution stuff, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Like chemistry was cool. The physics, that's cool, but <laughs> we, we we even did like a course that uh, showed how uh, geolo- geology, geologic timescales were bogus because our professor showed that like a, a certain root from a tree had grown through multiple layers of millions of years of sediment layer in like the Grand Canyon. He was like, see, see, tree can't live for a million years, but look. These roots go through all the layers. So how's that possible? It was it not possible that a tree just happened to then I, go look, through? This is the proof. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, do you think the Grand Canyon is a great detriment to evolutionary um, literacy in the U.S.? Uh, it, the probably because I I've heard it, and this this is a well trod out theory in the Christian movement, but the Grand Canyon is like one of either the source where all the water came from, from the inside of the earth to flood the earth for the Noah's flood, or it is the spot where God opened up the earth to drain the water from the flood after Noah's flood. So the Grand Canyon is evidence of the flood. (laughs) And never mind like the, the fake ship that they found in the Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they but found the it, ark. It was it was it's on Mount Ararat in uh in Iraq or whatever or, or Iran, right, exactly. Iraq. Yeah, it's right there. Um what I thought that Noah's ark the whole thing was that it rained. Well, yeah, yeah, but the you you know, then scientists would start to say, well, in order to rain that much and if you have only 40 days for it to rain like the actual atmosphere would be so saturated with water that you might as well have all been fish you couldn't breathe there would be no like oxygen it would would basically be like living underwater and so then people were like well the rain was part of it but God was also unleashing this huge under underground sea of water onto the surface and 
you, they, there was, they had to come up with a counter when people were like, yeah, just 40 days of rain isn't going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind that they didn't mention that in the Bible. Well, the Bible's written by humans. I thought it was inspired directly by God. No, it's, hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was one of the interesting debunks that I remember from, uh, from the 90s was learning about the, the secular kids say, t- telling us that, hey, you know, they couldn't even breathe. And then there was like a a Bill Nye thing in like the late 90s about the flood. And that was one of his points about the, the amount of moisture that would have to be in the atmosphere in order for that to happen. <laughs> Everyone would have just drowned before any boat was able to be built. <laughs> I need to... Bill Nye... He had um, one. I loved uh, Bill Nye, um, but he had something like right before I graduated, where he visited uh, Waco. Yeah, he was doing a uh, debunking or taking on religious colleges uh, type of thing, where he was willing to go be the scientist that they debated. He had that big Ken Ham debate at the Ark Museum in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. And this then, this one, <laughs> Bill Nye, the science guy, got booed in Texas for saying the moon reflects light from the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows the moon is a natural source of light. <laughs> you know, Waco is an interesting <laughs> town because it, it's definitely not like a college town. There's not, uh, at least when I, I know, went there. There's more than one college there, so it's at least a bi college town. <laughs> it, but it's it's not like there's a feeling of like everyone's like supporting the school and stuff. It almost it kind of feels like the way Denton does, but UNT's originally like a commuter college kind mm-hmm. of. So it's that is at least understandable. Um, and TWU, like, for obvious reasons in Texas, isn't going to get the town's support as much. Um, started the whole Roe v. Wade bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but Waco itself is, it's got a ton of churches because obviously there's going to be kids there that uh, will then donate money to the, the, ter- the, uh, the church. But the town did not feel like religious it felt i don't know maybe they were religious in the fact of like uh you know industry has left the country and i have nowhere else to turn Mm -hmm. i suppose that could be it but yeah it didn't ever feel like a place where there were um you know creationists walking (laughs) all over the place but it didn't feel like a place full of atheists either No, no. It does not feel like not. some secular maybe like where you go to hang out with all your secular friends either. <laughs> <laughs> no. Waco sucks. I haven't been back there. I know some people that like uh I graduated with that still go back for like multiple football games a year and just love going back there and I've just never for the life of me understood why you would go back there. I don't know. It's a weird thing to me. Are you? Did you ever go back to your college? Well, it's in Richardson, so I've driven by it. Um, I mean, but do you go and walk around campus no. and look in the library? No, and, and I don't... Um, 
I wouldn't even recognize it now because in the time where tuitions have like quintupled since I've graduated, they've gotten a whole lot of money to build like a whole lot of new buildings. So I don't even know if like any of the buildings that I went to are even still on the campus. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably I mean, the they built like the science um, building at Baylor right before I went there. So that was like brand new. And I remember people being like, this used to just be a field. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so did they talk about um, the out of Africa hypothesis at Baylor when you were taking science? I was trying to remember what the evolutionary approach was. One, I had a really good um, biology professor for my intro class. Um, so he he was... I mean, I think, you know, technically at Baylor, you have to be, say that you're a Christian uh, to be a professor, but he was like the least religious person I encountered there. Like he he just never once spoke about it. Well, he spoke about it on the first day of class and came in and is like, uh, you know, I know every single one of you thinks you're going to become a doctor. That's not going to happen, but <laughs> nevertheless. <laughs> and you're like, no, I'm definitely going to be a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like none of these idiots. I'm in the front row. Um, but the the point he made was things like religion or faith or whatever are um, subjectively based. It is as if you're looking at a flower and somebody says it's pretty and somebody else says it's not, and those aren't things that we discuss in science because it is not important to like the pursuit so and obviously he got like some kids probably huffing at the fact that right exactly but why are you in a biology class you know (laughs) Um, because i want to study god's creation his perfect creation of man (laughs) uh yeah so this guy was like pretty chill um and his approach to evolution and things was very, very just straightforward. It was an intro class. Um, and then after that, I had like, I, I, you know, I had a full year of intro. So intros one and two. And then I had genetics and um, human physiology at one point. Um, bio, what was it? Biochemistry. Uh, that class was very tough. Uh, and then I had medical molecular biotechnology, chordate anatomy. That one was big on evolution because it was comparing evolution across all of, well, not comparing evolution, but you're comparing anatomy across all of these different types of animals. Yeah. So, um, it like those sorts of classes would approach evolution in more of a, you can see how the, you know, scapula on like you know scapula equivalent on these lizards can rotate and all that kind of stuff and become these things so the way that it was approached was very much like this is just what it is um but it wasn't investigative at all Mm -hmm. so it was really like on my own that i was looking into this stuff you know i love biology so whenever we would learn about something um i'm not saying i was like the best college student but i would certainly get interested in stuff and evolution was one that i was really interested in 
where I would just start like looking up stuff. And this was around the time that Wikipedia wasn't, um, you couldn't, obviously you can't source it. Don't look at my notes for each episode. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but it certainly wasn't robust. It was still the Wild West where anyone could just type in anything on any Wikipedia page. And <laughs> Right, yeah. I mean, you can still like change stuff on it, but it will almost immediately get changed back unless you're like adding a comma. Yeah. Um, but back then it was, you know, like anything could be on there and it didn't really source like the claims and stuff like that. So... Um, but I would go reading and like trying to watch videos. Of course, YouTube was still pretty early on where people weren't doing a whole lot of stuff. So I don't know. It was more like a personal investigation into the things. Cause it's, it is weird to see like the Australopithecus face and how human like it is compared to like a gorilla. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it was, it was maybe more the approach where they were just like, fact-based saying uh we did not come from gorillas we did not come from chimpanzees those the chimps that exist today are as evolved as we are in the time scale because they currently exist they're they're, yeah they're concurrent to us they're not a predecessor so you could call them like your you're like your second cousin or something but they're not like your grandfather (laughs) right And, um, but knowing like personally for me, uh, I don't know about my mom. My mom's not like, uh, very bright when it comes to science. Um, and so she never really spoke about science. Although, well, (laughs) in college she would, she got into like the, the pyramid schemes and stuff Mm -hmm. and, um, wanted my endorsement so that she could tell everyone my, a biology degree studying son says that this magic powder actually does make yeah, your yeah, gut yeah, health yeah. better. You're the scientist. You're the reference scientist. <laughs> right. Um, it's been but lab my dad, tested by my son in his <laughs> lab in college. <laughs> yeah, he snuck it in into his OCHEM lab. Um, the my dad would be like, I think we took my half brothers to a museum once and they were showing they had like a lot of fossils it was like a touring exhibit and it came to like you know some museum in in dfw i can't remember which one and they had like the fossils lined up kind of in a almost phylogenetic tree Mm -hmm. and (laughs) the whole time he's just like so all of this is fake right (laughs) (laughs) like asking me after i have my degree already (laughs) It's like, I mean, you did the research, so you know that it's all fake. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, I don't know if the personal interest for me came from, like, just finding how interesting it all is, uh, or if it was more a rebellious thing, and which also concerns me for having my own kids, because then I'm yeah. like, well, <laughs> they're, they're going to be hardcore Christians. Down, yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, I, yeah, um, I, I definitely feel my journey was somewhat rebellious, but I think it was almost almost more in like inspired because it's um for the longest time I was like wanted to make all of those people in my life respect me and in a way like ooh wow he's really. Uh, internalize this religious knowledge that we've bestowed upon him and he can regurgitate it back to us perfectly. You know, I thought that was like what made me a good boy. 
And um, so my, you know, my my awakening on it was later, like in college and after college. And a lot of it was just more the the burden of the burden of proof was just so great that you at some point can no longer uh, be the be the obstinate asshole that's arguing with people about it type of thing. But yeah. two, like, there is this, j- just like there's, you know, disinformation in war, <laughs> there's disinformation when it comes to evolution and all of that stuff, especially if there's a, uh, a religious motivation behind, behind it. And so even when you are a religious creationist believer, your understanding of evolution that you are railing against is often this bastardized understanding of evolution. It's often this, oh, it's a very linear process because that's sort of our intuition to think the way that human beings think. Like we think things in this very linear fashion. So it's got to be predecessor and you go down this chain of events and Whenever I started actually studying it, it's never like that ever at all. <laughs> yeah. It has so much more to do with isolation um, and the amount of mating partners that you can have in an isolated group then can rise lots of different types of mutations in that isolated group. And those isolated groups that might have started from the same species, just having a few generations of isolation apart from each other can differ greatly just based upon their distance. And then if they come back together, they might not recognize each other anymore after a few generations have gone by. If they have never intermixed or interbred or had any reason to come in contact with each other again. Um, so even the story of human evolution of just homo, like all homos are humans. So, you know, it's not just homo sapiens are us like, Homo erectus, all of them, <laughs> Neanderthals, Denisovans, uh, the the little uh, Hobbit people, all all of them. They're all humans, um, and in a lot of the cases, their evolution was all happening concurrently in different pockets of the globe, and then at other points they crossed back over to remix again, and so that's sort of the most fascinating part of the story to me, and um, I guess. For for uh, for the sake of ease, when you're talking about like phylogenetic trees and stuff, um, what is a phylogenetic tree? Just to start off, <laughs> because I think that's important. <laughs> and that uh, to uh, defining that is kind of important because the branches of the how that works is how we're going to understand what goes on with all the different Homo branches. Yeah the the phylogenetic tree is just. Uh, I mean, it's almost. If anyone's seen like a pedigree chart or done like their family history, it's that concept, uh, except it's showing where different species come from. So it's not showing where your your uncle had kids and then, you know, you had kids so you can see how, <laughs> you know, how many slots to the left they yeah, are. Well, that what does... is the descending order? <laughs> Right. Um, it is it is the descending order of differences in species, and the phylogenetic trees are also th- through certain testing. You can be pretty confident that you know this species came from this species, uh, but there's no one hundred percent because 
you know, new, new things can be found, new species can be found, and then you can add another branch or maybe this one came from this. So it's, it's also kind of like a good, uh, it's almost like a rule of thumb sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, obviously there's so much science that goes into it that it is, people have extreme confidence that it's accurate, but it's showing where a, how far back in time, and that can be, you know, depending on what you're looking at, um, you know, dog breeds, you could be talking about hundreds or thousands of years, or if you're talking about, uh, humans from, uh, you know, ape like ancestors, millions of years. Yeah. At least two and a half million, I guess, going back to where the oldest Homo erectus, um, fossils are, at least that was what I saw. Yeah. Or Homo habilis probably. Yeah. Like the, and the the thing that like these branches shows is where in time it's uh strongly you know not concluded but strongly felt that there was that last common ancestor and that's kind of the thing we've been talking about with evolution is it's not that right at that time point it suddenly switched and you had somebody that was um you know, better at using tools. And then you had somebody else who still was going to wait on using tools. And, you know, that then had these two different types of groups go together. It's, it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. It is, it is more that the, the branch that developed to, you know, form, um, the tool, the tool using human uh, Homo habilis, um, the handyman, was developing from some lineage uh, that broke apart at this point. And the way that you trace all of this back, essentially, is uh, the way that DNA works. Um, you know, DNA is fairly stable, and we've spoken about how mutations occur. The rate at which mutations occur in DNA, as long as you're not like, you know, exposed to radiation and stuff like that, because mm-hmm. that'll probably just end up killing you. Or or um, you're not do, just stuck with a very small family and you're just inter, interbreeding over and over yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's like there dogs. are some other things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the, the rate at which mutations occur that happen on like an evolutionary sort of scale happen at a constant rate, essentially. Um, so you can actually just look at DNA between two things. And if you have like DNA from an old fossilized sample that you think might be a common ancestor, you can literally just draw lines back through those points and find how far back in time these two different things were related. So it is like an actual mathematical process to trace back where these things are. It's not just saying like, well, we found a fossil, so we got a good guess that this is this is the branching point. It's more that they found a fossil of something that... Um, resembles humans but still has you know ape-like characteristics or is shorter you know the the skull is like a big factor in all of this 
and they can say, okay, well, we know humans had to have this many different cycles of, you know, current day humans had to have this many cycles of evolution for our skull to get more round and not pitched as much. Um, and this one has a pitched forehead and is a little bit more jagged of a skull. So we know the number of evolutionary mutations it needed to take to get to now so we can work backwards and see, was this an ancestor or were we just related at some point farther back in time? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of the cool thing that you can do with those phylogenetic trees. And obviously, I don't understand the math of it because, um, you know, I feel like I would have to be way more dedicated. Yeah, the amount of gene sequencing and then they're finding like just the rows of letters <laughs> in the DNA yeah. where they're like, oh, look, here's a row of like 306 that all kind of match up with this one ancient strand <laughs> that we already <clears throat> that we already identified. And so we're able to say, OK, well, this even though we sequenced the entire gene of this uh fossilized uh homo species we found we found that it has this much percentage that matches exactly with a neanderthal or this much percentage that matches matches exactly with erectus and there that's how they're able to tell but like we've only been able to sequence genes for like what 25 years <laughs> i mean we've only been able to like um rapidly sequence genes for like 10 to 15 years i yeah. think like the, the, I remember in, co uh, in high school, they were talking about like sequencing the genome, like that big product project mm -hmm. of being like, oh, we're finally going to understand what the entire human DNA is. And then of course in Texas, people are like, oh, and then we're going to find God's signature somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he always, <laughs> he's always signed in the corner like Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> right. Um, but now they can they can trace multiple uh, fragments of DNA like in the same kind of tests to line them up really quickly, um, which is incredible <laughs> how fast the technology has advanced on that. Yeah, it's, so it's 2010 when they fully sequence the Neanderthal genome. And from that point, you get the start of, a few years later, you get the start of all the... Uh, 23andMe and all of your relative stuff that people start spitting in tubes to find out who they're related to and all the the Mormons are collecting it all to pray them up into heaven in the future. But the the offshoot of that is because the Neanderthal genome was sequenced, we start to get a whole lot of data that shows that, uh, hey, guess what? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all got it. And not just not just us people that were like maybe descendants from people the Neanderthals who were hanging out in Eurasia on the on the plains. It's like uh, there's evidence too that uh, obviously there was the out of Africa movement of the original Homo that went out and and spread out into Eurasia and Europe and then down into um, the the islands and then eventually into Australia, but. Um, so that's the, the Neanderthals are the, the ancestors of that out of Africa movement, as are the Denisovans and some of the other homo species. And they are so isolated. They operate in small groups and stay very isolated, spread across that entire two continent region 
that they do evolve differently over time. And so Denisovans have different gene sequence than Neanderthals do, and Neanderthals have a different gene sequence than eventually the sapiens that evolve in Africa at the same time have. But you also have, even now in like the lineages of the people from Eastern Africa where sapiens originate, they now also have the Neanderthal DNA strains, which means... Yeah, but on a very low on a low lower On a lower too. level, but it means that it was so prevalent and it, it got into us early enough and became spread throughout the population early enough that they brought it back from Eurasia back to Africa on a migration where they came back to Africa at some point and got it back into that population. Um, so that's that's just fascinating to me that a a species that uh, probably died off around 40,000 years ago, maybe it lasted around, there's like some small groups that hung around to like 20 or 15,000 years ago that were like small pockets of places. But primarily it looks like they were gone about 40,000 years ago. It's not that they're gone and it's not that it was a dead end species and like it's not even like it's ever reached full speciesization from any other homo species because we were able to procreate and have offspring and the same with the Denisovans and everything else. So in a weird way, homo sapiens versus all of the other homo, it's not true speciesization in the way that we think about like other speciesization on the evolutionary tree. Yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting um, because the definition that um gets taught so much about what a species is is uh you cannot it cannot create a child the the offspring or it can't create a fertile offspring a fertile offspring horse yeah. horse like, has sex with donkey and they have a mule mule cannot procreate yeah um so the the way that like it it breaks down once it gets closer to modern times is a little fuzzy, uh, but there are genetic differences enough. Like you can procreate so much so that if you're from like European descent, you can have anywhere from like two to five percent Neanderthal DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you're in Northern Africa, there's like a little bit percent, or like if you're uh, descended from Northern Africa, and then descended from other parts of Africa lower down like it's it's near zero or you know very very low but the this all flies in the face of eugenics is <laughs> that, that's just what like even if you want to like have like a uh, try to have a scientific discussion about eugenics as if there's some like a genetically pure version of humanity or something like that that we should all be striving for that ever existed um, the fact that the Neanderthal DNA is so ubiquitous amongst all the different <laughs> human beings of modern times sort of shows that we are all mutts. There's no uh, no no perfect gene pool or some perfect ubermensch human that we're all supposed to be striving for. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's uh, especially when you're going that far back. Um, and I I mean I found it pretty interesting too. Like Neanderthals. As you were describing, like they were pretty smart uh, and could, like, had a lot of medical, uh, 
marks in the fossil record. But it's it's crazy if you think if you look back at like the beginning of the Homo genus, and if you have Homo habilis, um, they named it that because they're like, oh, this thing made tools, um, and it made it, you know it made like axes and stuff out of stones that it would hold in its hand. Um, then you get to Homo ergaster uh, erectus. Like there's there's a Homo ergaster. Uh, species and then there's a homo erectus species that people have probably more likely heard of um but the there's some debate that the ergaster should be subsumed into the erectus one mm-hmm. or just kind of a predecessor or something and a lot of this goes back to like the old ideas of like phylogeny and stuff that were used in the 1800s and early 1900s when they were digging up some of these fossils you know, you're just like, oh, this skull looks slightly different than this skull. So they're two different species rather than being, even knowing if like one is a juvenile versus an adult or knowing all, all those types of differences because there's just no way to know back then when they were just digging it out. And it was just based upon visual inspection where they would say it was a difference. Yeah. And the, the like, this Homo ergoster species... Um, they think that it could have possibly like left Africa. It could have been the first uh, homo species to leave Africa like 1.75 million years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like uh, the Asian Homo erectus spread eastward and established in the Southeast Asia region like 1.6 million years ago. And they found, you know, these tools and stuff there. Um, then you get to the Neanderthal and that... <laughs> It, like you think back to like the stone age or then the bronze age or whatever, obviously that's a big leap. Yeah. But the stone age, you're like, all right, well they're using stuff, but they're making like axes or whatever. You know, I I've played Minecraft. Like I got the <laughs> idea here, but there had to be a point that they went from holding an ax in their hand to tying it to a piece of wood. And that's like the Neanderthal technology jump. Yeah, when they're is, combined combined materials. <laughs> right, it, which is insane. They like um they had the ability to like easily create fire. Uh they made cave hearths. They made adhesive birch bark tar. <laughs> like they had an adhesive that they would create. Um they had like blankets and ponchos and could wait weave stuff. They could see fair across the Mediterranean. Um they knew how to store food. They knew how to smoke food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the, well, yeah. The, at this time, we they people have accidentally been cooking things and now are intentionally cooking things, and so we're getting that sort of cognitive uh, boost from all that cooked cooked food, cooked meat. Yeah, and the the thing with like comparison to uh, today's chimpanzees that I think is important to draw a parallel from is like homo habilis being able to use tools like chimpanzees use tools Mm -hmm. they crows use use like (laughs) yeah they they use sticks to like fish out ants or they use like larger sticks as levers to kind of move stuff and lift things so using a tool is not something that is um that only humans do. You know, we've spoken about it too, like crows. Crows mm-hmm. are insanely smart. 
And they, so they the, learn through imitation, which is it, that's that's that's, that's that's the sort of the um, imitation is a big cognitive jump for a for a species to take because it allows you to pass on knowledge from one creature to the next and that knowledge can continue after those creatures die and we talked about with crows they even like can pass on their recognition of human beings to like generations beyond so like two crows after the main crow died that you slighted in your front yard that its grandson will still be pissed off at you <laughs> <laughs> right rightly so <laughs> Um, <laughs> just imagining like a crow wanting to settle a blood feud, uh, <laughs> like an old man. Um, but the difference here with the homo species between like chimps or apes or whatever is instead of learning through imitation, the brain grew to a point where it could then like, I forget the word for it, but they... They would learn. They would collectively work together to advance the knowledge or advance yeah, yeah, the yeah. technology. And so things could be advanced within a generation, not across, you know, 50 generations, hoping that the genes somehow instilled like this kind of instinct or whatever. Yeah, it's the uh, the accessibility to imagination. And I think that's sort of the at least in the books that I've been reading and the research for this week, that's kind of where the defining factor is on the explosion of human evolution and why we sort of take over the world. As far as, as far as we know, we're the only things on the planet that can imagine things in the abstract and then turn those things into a reality. But that's like everything. I mean, that's why we have religion. That's why we have <laughs> ghost stories. That's why we have all of the stuff. But that's also why we like believe in money. <laughs> like it's <laughs> like, like it would, it would just take uh you know, if, if like half the population just decided, ah, I don't believe in money anymore. I don't believe in that abstract concept anymore. Money actually wouldn't be worth anything anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, there's a whole lot of that that ends up being the, I think the, or the theory is that that is the driving force for our major advancement is our ability to have those abstract thoughts outside of reality and then try to make those come to fruition. Whereas like you said with the chimps, they can pass on the ideas of how to fish fish termites out of a hill, but no one is becoming like, uh, they aren't like developing machines to now get more termites out in a more efficient way or right. setting up termite farms that they build fences around to protect that they say, oh, look, well, we're termite farmers now and we just start started making a huge mound of termites that just all the, all the chimps could come to and just We'll just hand them a big bag of termites. No one has to collect their termites anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, which I would love to see that advancement. <laughs> but but the important thing to point out, too, um, that I think starts getting like a little confusing is, OK, well, we had this advancement in our ability to imagine things and then we started to advance as a species. But as I always try to point out, it's not like there was a big conference of early Homo sapiens that then said, 
we should start advancing evolutionarily. Every year they add a homo pack. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Evolutionarily, there was still mutations going on. And whenever you get to a point where, okay, everyone can has the ability to learn how to make fire and can learn how to, um, you know, place it in different spots to like cook food in different ways. That is, that's a huge advancement. That's not imitation. We can all work together on it. But over the thousands and thousands of years and thousands of generations, there's still mutations going on that increase you know, brain size mm-hmm. or increase brain folding and give us then the ability to have smarter people. It's not so much that people decided, well, we should start getting smarter and come up with these abstract, right. you know, math concepts. It is that the brains literally just mutated to be able to hold even more intense information and and manipulate it which is that's like the big difference and that's why it's it still took you know thousands of years from the arrival of homo sapiens to get to sapiens sapiens which is you know (laughs) just a lovely name (laughs) yeah the and the the reminder that in evolution with these adaptations that are beneficial it's always requiring trade-offs you don't just get to keep all the good stuff there has to be like like we talked about with T-Rex, the reason T-Rex has little arms is because he got the biggest, most powerful jaw. And you to have that, you got to have a giant neck. And if you have a giant neck, it means you can't have big shoulders and arms because you, all the muscle resources you evolved into your neck rather than your shoulders and arms. You don't, you don't get all of it. You can't, <laughs> you don't get to choose all the best parts in your build a creator <laughs> player or whatever type of, type of thing for being men. So, we are trading off parts of our brain size are being traded off for our physical dominance. Um, like other parts, other relatives to us have greater physical strength, have much more um, endurance, have uh, lots of other physical traits that would make them dominate their environment that we give up to get bigger heads. Um, and that's, that's just another sort of interesting thing. Look at Neanderthals who are evolving concurrently with sapiens and their evolution, their modifications to their bodies. They hold on to some of those physical characteristics that make them dominant over their environment because of their brute strength. Like they have shorter, um, forearms, they have incredibly large biceps and shoulders, like much larger than sapiens do. Um, they're a little bit shorter, but that means they have a lower center of gravity, which means they probably ran faster. They probably had more agility, especially if they were organizing hunting and things like that. They had the ability to take down game, maybe a little bit better than lanky, awkward sapiens, you know, trying to do it. Um, so there are trade-offs is, is just basically all, all that I, the point that I was bringing up is just like, yeah, not, 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 you don't get something for nothing. Yeah. And the, the, the concept of the trade-off is one that's kind of interesting because, um, like I, 
another reason we're interested in talking about this episode is um, I'm doing like an art project with a, a researcher at like the Keck School of Medicine, um, which I'm very excited about. But um, shout out to Charleston if he's listening. He said he was going to start listening. Ooh, awesome. Which you know, gave me a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to kick you up. <laughs> On second thoughts, Eric, uh, how about we just... <laughs> <laughs> it's nice knowing you. Um, but his research is concerned with, once you get to Homo sapiens and you have the migrations of Homo sapiens out of Africa and you have these different populations, it's like twofold kind of research stuff. One... He's very interested in showing how, like, we're all way related. Mm -hmm. We're, like, I think 0.1% of our DNA is different between any two people on Earth. Yeah. Um, We're way more closely related than, like, any two dog breeds are. Like, I think dog breeds, it can be up to, like, 27% of their DNA is different. Oh, yeah, but... That's because that was our fun eugenics project as humans. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, served us well. And Let's see if we can make it like have a completely smashed face. How do you turn a wolf into a smashed face? I don't know. Let's try it. Can you do it in two steps? How many steps does it take? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I like Totoro, I'm concerned his uh, his mom was a corgi and then his He's also part like husky and German shepherd. And I'm just like, I, I don't want to see what on? that gangbang looked like. <laughs> no. This, um, poor, this poor corgi. <laughs> He's getting ripped open. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm hoping that there were some inter intermeaning intervening, you know, uh breeds there. Um but anyways, the um, is intermeaning a word? I keep like writing it and it tells me it's not a word. I, it sounds like a word. I-N-T-E-R-M-E-A-N-E-I-N-G. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but his, his research is also concerned with what are, so there's different populations obviously in the world. Um, one, we're all related. So things like race are like modern, um, racist yeah. <laughs> like ideal it's a concept really uh there isn't like a genetic difference necessarily just because two people look differently um but there are there are genetic differences between populations and knowing that there is this thing in evolution where there's always some sort of trade-off He's interested in trying to find genetically what is the trade-off that was made that, you know, these people and he's done like some research on uh, links between height of people in Sardinus and some, I think it's some genetic disease or something. Um, but the there had to be this trade-off there was you know i can't remember if the people are taller or shorter or something but there was some genetic thing that seems to be linked to this specific population um so what is it and what is so interesting about like finding those differences talking about again a phylogenetic tree is you can start to trace like where did those differences arise mm -hmm. and 
that means when did these people migrate to this area? Did they come from these other people that, okay, well, their DNA matches and from the genetic phylogenetic tree, we can trace it back that this split happened at this point in time. So yes, they came from them or they didn't. And one thing that's super interesting in this uh, concept to like trace people back is instead of looking at the entire genome, that's like 3.2 billion bases, like individual molecules um, touching each other. Well, I mean, times two. Um, Mitochondria, as we've spoken about, because it was, uh, you know, the theory is two billion years ago, we only had single-celled things, and then it was eaten by one, but instead of being dissolved, it was absorbed and became like the energy-making thing. Mm -hmm. Ouch. Um, mitochondria because it was its own thing has its own dna and it's very short which makes it very easy to uh sequence and it also means whenever like a a human it like the the sperm and the egg come together um the mitochondria doesn't change up the dna like the way that all of our other chromosomes except for or Y chromosome does. And the the reason is because your mother passes on the mitochondria to you. You have like the same DNA in your mitochondria as your mother does, barring for whatever mutations would occur at a natural rate. And right, because is there there's not even is there mitochondrial information at all in sperm? Because you would I obviously there's the mitochondria that are part of the um, egg process inside of the woman, mm-hmm. but does sperm have mitochondria? <laughs> that's that's a weird <laughs> question. I never even thought about it. But yeah, does a sperm even have mitochondrial information at all? Or is it so just a sperm? Do. Is a sperm right? They the sperm has mitochondria. It it has. I think. I mean, it's in like the double digits. I think like they've counted like seventy five mitochondria in a sperm compared to you know probably thousands in the egg okay um but the the difference is like because the sperm is motile it is using up all of its energy so it's like just running through the mitochondria so much that by the time that it fuses with the egg the egg then like disintegrates everything else that was in the sperm including the mitochondria for energy and repurpose and reuse. And it and just holds on to the chromosomal information. Uh, yeah, it only takes the human genetic DNA. It doesn't take the mitochondrial DNA. It just breaks that down and then okay. uses it again as building blocks or if it's messed up, you know, gets rid of it and all that kind of stuff. So that um, just basically means that every single human being has a maternal link. Every single human being has a maternal link, and that also means the male can never pass it on. So tracing it back through, you can actually um, find that uh, because this this DNA, like so with all of our other chromosomes, um, whenever we're making, like whenever a man is making the sperm cells, because we have two sets of chromosomes from our, our mother and our father, mm-hmm. the DNA is, it goes through this process called recombination where 
like the little arms, you've all seen them. They kind of look like sticks, like X's and stuff. The the sticks of the X's kind of cross over and the DNA chunks literally uh, separate out and kind of replace each other like Legos across the thing. And it does this in every single um, like sperm cell, um, barring maybe statistically like one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like where it's, it doesn't really do any. But it crosses over and that's how you don't look identical to your parents because it's not the exact same uh, genetic information and that's why your offspring don't look identical to your parents because the stew Um, got stirred up exactly well the mitochondria because it doesn't get stirred up is the same um except for this this understood constant of mutation that occurs And through understanding that and tracing it and seeing how mitochondria is different in this one population that is, you know, on Madagascar versus this one population that's like um, in the northeast of Canada, you can, of course, talking about like native populations because everybody else has sort of mixed everything up. Um, You can then trace back, well, when was the last person uh, that the Madagascar population and the, you know, uh, not Vancouver, whatever, Quebec native population, like when were they last related? Where was the last unique individual that tied them together? And then from that, you can find what was the last unique individual, like mother, that we're all related to, which is super fascinating. Um, but they, they've been able to track back and find that statistically the way that the mitochondria gets passed on needing it to be you know given to a daughter because then the daughter can then yeah. give it to her daughter yeah because the well son can never naturally give it if you have all sons kids. that's going to be the end of humanity <laughs> if we just have all <laughs> exactly <boys. laughs> um amazing how that trick just worked out right <laughs> um so the the mitochondria has to be passed from mother to daughter in order to retain the same genetic information in the mitochondria, which means they've found that statistically everybody has the same mitochondria back to this point and every other human that existed at that point, every other female uh, human uh, 200,000 years ago, at some point in her lineage, her offspring only had a son, or mm-hmm. she only had a son. Or, and it you know, dead-ended somewhere. Exactly. So there is this literally one individual that we are all related to. This one to. Queen Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> and in comparison, um, it, that's very cool. There's somebody 200,000 years ago. The same thing with our sex chromosomes, how we have as uh, males, you have an XY and females uh, have XX and then other people have, you know, three X's or two X's and another Y. Um, The way that like genetically it works, um, those are like, you know, abnormalities in, in the process. That would be obviously somebody that like it gets talked about, especially during like the Olympics. They're like, well, you know, she has an X or a Y chromosome. Extra, blah, an blah, extra blah. Y, yeah. Um, the way that it actually works out is 
if you like the number of X's you have minus one X means that you have like female characteristics, mm-hmm. like for whatever reason. So being males, we only have one X and then minus that X. So we don't have it. We right. have zero. So that's why we have the Y characteristics. The Y um, doesn't have another component typically, but um, that means that it doesn't do recombination, which again means that the Y genetic information is pretty much the same with this constant mutation that occurs. Um, And you can then trace it back and find one male that we're all related to. Find our dad. (laughs) So... So I'm just saying Adam and Eve is actually the correct story. But the, but what what is the what is the guy? Isn't he like 350,000 years ago or okay, something? Okay, so semantics. <laughs> yes, they didn't exist at the same they, time. Yeah, but. they're not they weren't actually a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it well, maybe, just means maybe that Y chromosome Adam his whatever uh like 15th great grandson hooked up with mitochondrial eve um so they haven't traced it to be the because it's a female it wouldn't have had the y chromosome so no and then the male wouldn't have passed the mitochondria so no that's also you can't say that so the what i'm saying is you know the miracle had to exist of his sperm floating and then that's where you get the virgin mary too yeah little did you know eve was the virgin mary um but it, it's very interesting because then with like the Y chromosome, that means it had to be passed from father to son through all of these generations, like 10,000 generations. And this Y chromosome like ancestor existed between 200 to 300,000 years ago. Um, so no, they didn't meet. Um, but it also means that both of those were not original sapiens. Exactly. That's the crazy thing. <laughs> is you can trace it back to this one person uh, or these two uh, different individuals, um, but there had to be other humans that existed, and we know that for a fact, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing that I find wild is these people existed. Obviously, other Homo sapiens existed before them. There's, like, tools that they found in, like, parts of India, I believe, that existed, you know, like 500,000 years ago or something. And they're like, well, this is like tools that would be made by Homo sapiens. But (laughs) the way that the population genetics works out, we all fit back, like everyone who exists, all nearly 8 billion of us, everyone, like the ancestors that populated the entire globe only came out of Africa 70,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. which means the second we had, (laughs) yeah, we had like literally the same species of animals come out of Africa, go across the globe, and died out like probably plenty of times. Yeah. And like the estimates that I saw were when you had all the Neanderthal populations in Eurasia and the Denisovians on, you know, the Far East and maybe some Erectus and Habilis and other things out in Europe and still in Africa and all of that. Like, at that time, again, they're hunter-gatherers. So everyone is in small groups 
sparsely populated all across these giant continents. But, like, when you add them all up, there's still probably between one and three million individuals on the planet at any given time during that period. Not the eight billion we have now, but still, (laughs) it's more than, like, lions exist now or more than like elephants that are on the planet now or more you know than a lot of things that we have on the planet now they're like oh yeah look at all those giraffes way more way more uh homos were around uh before seventy thousand years ago than there are giraffes on the planet today yeah it's i mean it's just wild like i think i may have misspoken about the tools it was probably like over a hundred thousand years ago um but anyways the the thing that's like so so interesting about like tracing all of this back again is not only is there like the ancestors that went out and died off or went out and you know a thousand generations later sort of came back in of course you can imagine around the mediterranean that happening um and interbreeding with all of these other like homo species it's it's just fascinating that the mitochondrial like uh mutations and stuff that occurred in africa it ha- that like in africa there is the most number of um diversity mm-hmm. in mitochondrial dna um than anywhere else in the world uh and they have like all these different um subgroups and all this kind of stuff but the most interesting thing that you know, just talking about, we currently don't live in Africa, so this is why it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only one mutation in the mitochondrial DNA that all of the other native populations that went out of Africa are from. And that mutation also exists in Africa, but it's like the L3 mitochondrial DNA pool. Um, and that suggested that the migration out of uh, Eastern Africa to Central Africa occurred like 60,000 to 35,000 years ago. Uh, that's like within Africa. But then you have other groups that like left from this one individual mutation group. And that's where you get all of these other mutations in genetic information that make your, you know, Asian, uh, Pacific Island, European, America's all of those native populations came from this one individual mutation out of Africa, which is just like mind blowing (laughs) to show how closely related everyone is. Well, and also how close, how close to just total extinction (laughs) humans were 70,000 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, um, I mean, you say we've mentioned it. I know that we've like mentioned it in passing, but I don't think I've ever specifically looked at Mount Toba, which I probably want to do like a bigger discussion on at some point later on. Mm-hmm. But um, fascinating. <laughs> in Indonesia, there is this massive volcano that erupted like 74,000 years ago, and they're thinking that it took humans down to like 2,000 people. Yeah. And 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 pretty much back in the African continent where they they could like if they were still up in like the Siberia area they 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 were gone like there wasn't uh, they didn't survive the volcanic eruption and the climate disaster that or the rapid cooling and ice age that happened right after because of the cloud cover and the 
the different atmospheric dynamics that blocked out the sun and everything. Yeah, it says like the there's ice core evidence to suggest that the average air temperature dropped by three to five degrees Celsius or as much as 10 degrees Celsius uh, in the northern hemisphere the first year after the event, which is like 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Um, so just yeah. everything died except for like those few. I mean, I think they call them kind of like the Garden of Eden like theory that mm-hmm. there were just some places that were just somehow able to maintain <laughs> humans or they just had just enough that only this amount of humans could survive along with this amount of animals along with this amount the the resources that were left meant that the earth could only support this many humans right now (laughs) right yeah it's um it's nuts and i was also looking at like the hunter gatherer i mean this is way uh more in the future but the the hunter-gatherers of like 11,000 years ago, there was like around six to eight million humans on Earth. And with hunter-gatherer populations, that's like the maximum that the Earth can support because you've, whenever you gather food, you got to wait for it to grow back. So mm-hmm. you have to go to a new location. Um, so I don't... And that's about the time when we started wiping out all the megafauna because (laughs) our population was still going up and like there was all these giant creatures that were real slow that really weren't scared of us. So we were kind (laughs) of like, I'll kill all the giant wombats in Australia, whatever. (laughs) The, The thing though, I don't... I didn't look up how many people existed before like the Mount Toba eruption. Um... But do you know was like the Mount Toba eruption? Obviously, Neanderthals existed beyond that. Mm-hmm. But is this kind of like a a line with other Homo species? Yeah, I, I, from at least from the reading that I did, that at the time the estimates were one and a half to three million individuals before seventy thousand years ago, and that number got down to like single digits thousands whether it was 2,000 or 6,000, who knows, but under 10,000 individuals. So because like Neanderthals were so hunter-gatherer, small group um, living, I would imagine that you would have the holdouts of a few. But then I think really what happened um, or what a lot of the genetic evidence suggests is not necessarily that there were just large groups of Neanderthals that stayed in Eurasia and then lasted another 30,000 years before they died out. It's that in the time before 70,000 years ago when the volcano erupted, when Sapiens made their made their voyages out of Eastern Africa and then interacted, you know, 200,000 years ago, 150,000 years ago with Neanderthals and Denisovians and others, that it wasn't necessarily like tribal warfare and genocide or something like that if anything it was an acceptance and like there were sapiens that fell in love with um neanderthals and they maybe after us after certain events some were like exchanged with each other and there were sapiens that stayed with the neanderthal group and like some females of the neanderthals came back with the sapiens back to africa and so that it wasn't necessarily like the people there saw the 
the differences and were immediately threatened by each other that the aspect of sort of it takes a village to raise a child all these early evolutionary traits that had sort of been established two million years prior held over enough so that you had the ability to even communicate between sapiens and neanderthals like neanderthals have almost the same sort of um EQ range of sounds they can make and the same linguistic capabilities for like soft consonants and that type of thing. So there's there's nothing to say that we wouldn't have been able to communicate with each other or pick up on each other's language or pick up on each other's culture or any of that type of stuff. And so I, I think it's not necessarily that the volcano happens and then there's these pockets of a few Neanderthals up in the North that somehow survived the ice age. If anything, it's probably that their genetic information was absorbed into all the people that went back to Africa. And so that's how their lines got preserved. And then they went back out from Africa again after the volcano, when there were ice bridges everywhere. And then they got to the Americas and all that. It's wild though. Like just trying to imagine, I mean, as we spoke about, like, it's not the same sort of concept of speciation, but I mean, what, I can't imagine like, uh, two different species, like understanding <laughs> and communicating and working together. But that's also the thing that I like to imagine of like those early people, they aren't looking at Neanderthals and s saying you're a different thing. Right. Like, it's more like you live in a different place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's wild to like imagine how there could have been this cooperation and all that kind of stuff just because it's, you know, you got such different types of people. Um, I don't know. It's wild. <laughs> well, and it's probably still, that's the thing that we don't know. Like we don't, whether it's the Sapiens or the Neanderthals or any of the other versions from these times, because of the way that they lived, even the, the archaeological record doesn't really show us much about like culture or religion or mysticism or things that would be outside of just the day-to-day -day life activities that would have bonded the groups together or made them have differences with other groups. Uh, just because when you're hunter-gatherer societies, like, you might have a lot of beliefs and other things that tie you together, but you can't, you're, you're not building churches and, <laughs> and like, you're not having a bunch of relics that you carry around with you because you have to carry it around with you everywhere. Like, you can, yeah. you're, you're only carrying, like, the necessities, these few tools that I like and, like, the stuff I need to stay warm and these couple bags that I keep food in. I'm not carrying anything else because that's could cost me my life if I'm carrying too much stuff. So there's even like just understanding of uh, arts and uh, culture from that aspect, whether it's like ornamentation or things. There's just so little information because it would have been burdensome for them to like make long lasting type of effigies and things that would, you know, commemorate that type of stuff. Yeah, I think. Did the Neanderthals like bury 
people at some point? There's uh, there's um, sort of different takes on that in the academic literature. Um, definitely, there are buried Neanderthals, and there are groups of buried Neanderthals. Don't know if it's all the people got thrown into a pit like after a battle or they all got sick and so people just like buried them and threw them all in a cave on top of each other or if it was some religious practice. Um, there are some remains of Neanderthals that seem a little bit more ceremonial um, where they um, they find the bodies and they're, they're laid out but they're missing parts of like their fingers and toes and other things because... The idea would be that they, the way that they revered death or revered a person who had died was that you would take a, an ornament off of them or like a trophy of that person to keep with you. And other cultures around the world and modern human times do this with their dead where they like keep pieces of the dead person's body. Um, so it's not necessarily like. There's no evidence that it was cannibalism or something like that. It seems more like and a very intentional like um, dissection of these parts. Hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I always enjoy like looking at kind of the the cave art stuff too, mm -hmm. um, which is super fascinating. I know I've been telling you like randomly about the the Dawn of Everything book the Graber mm -hmm. co-authored book that um, Matt Chrisman is going through. And it is interesting. Like the, it's like controversial, like the way that they depict some of the stuff because other people are like, oh, they're just cherry picking like parts that they want. Um, but like cave art, they were discussing that uh, like cave art is sort of showing the people what we do, like, to tell the story, not like just depicting it in an artistic sense, but saying our people hunt, you know, this kind of stuff. These are the instructions for how to be part of the tribe. <laughs> yeah. And you talking about like not making, you know, um, little idols or whatever for your beliefs, like the goddess was no, the Venus of Willendorf, like the statue of like the female kind of figure, mm -hmm. um, you know, people long have thought that that's like, meant to represent like the goddess of i guess you know women or childbearing or whatever um but their theory in the book is more like no this is like they made all those things to show like the the like females like this is what we do so it's it's kind of interesting like trying to trying to just imagine i don't know i i always like to imagine just what were these early humans doing and how are they communicating with each other and stuff? So, yeah. And with the communication thing, I imagine it being very similar to uh, when the people, f first voyagers from the West, encountered the uh, indigenous people in America. Like, how no, no one was going to know Algonquin. <laughs> like, <laughs> and no, no Algonquin was going to know like Spanish or English or French. So, like, yeah, but they figured it out pretty quickly. Um, yeah, which is nuts. I mean, it just yeah. shows you the the like mental capacity of humans. Right. Because um, if as long as something can communicate in the same like EQ tonal range 
so so and it's capable of making similar sounds as you and you can quickly go from grunting and pointing to this is my word for this and then you say what your word is for it and we're like okay I've we've already translated one term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can happen quickly. I found I was watching a TED talk from like another uh, population geneticist, and he was talking about how like language. He works at um, Nat Geo, covering. I mean, I didn't know this, but Nat Geo, along with oh, I can't remember who, but they did their own like genetic thing before like. 23 and me and oh, everything yeah, yeah. took off. Um and uh but anyways, he was saying that language is like a big key for some of the genetic stuff that they follow and I didn't know this. I you know, we've covered like language before, but I must have forgotten it. Um I didn't know Basque is like they got no clue where Basque came from. Just like Maybe it was like a secret twin language that a couple kids had. <laughs> yeah, like they're like it's not related to anything else that exists language-wise. Like it didn't come from Polynesia somehow mm-hmm. or something. It just there's no other equivalent. And the same with Hungarian. Like Hungarian, they've got no clue how it got there. Um and he was like pointing out the fact like somebody uh did their DNA and it said that they were like, you know, uh, part Asian and like Central Asia and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the person was like, you have to test me again because I know that I'm Hungarian. And so then they were able to like test Hungarian people. And because it's like an isolated population to have such a unique language, they were then finding in Hungary, uh, in Hungary um, but of like Hungarian people, there is like two to 3% like Central Asian ancestry Hmm. um so it's it you can like language is another interesting thing to start looking at you know genetics is very interesting language is very interesting and um the point is being we all like are related so (laughs) yeah be very nice if stopped hating other people and you know the the last thought that i had is the the thing that left me itching in the back of my mind from this whole deal is you know, last week we talked about, or when we did seed vaults, we were talking about genetic diversity and everything. And so I wonder what the evolutionary history of humans would have been if you don't have the volcano 70,000 years ago. Because I feel like you captured the genetic uh, you captured a little sliver of the genetic diversity at the time in those last 2000 humans that were existing but then they all had to like breed together in a much more closed knit group than you had beforehand where you had all these populations very separated and isolated from each other sort of mutating and evolving in isolation and having all this diversity create in a way, like, are we dumber and less evolved because we all came from a very narrow inbred group that of leftovers? Would we have been, was there another version of this evolution where we don't go back down to 2000 individuals where humans are a much more robust, genetically diverse group? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it's pretty interesting to imagine, but I don't think you would be able to say that we're less evolved uh, because technically like the that bottleneck event is one that allows natural selection to then yeah, force a lot of pressure more evolution like um just because there's so there's so much more open space mm-hmm. like you know it, the the niche needs to be repopulated so yeah i don't know would we be dumber um but healthier <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. would we yeah i don't know that is interesting yeah and because they're like uh i was listening to a a podcast, uh, Big Picture Science, and they had a guy on, I think this was last year, but he was talking about the different Neanderthal uh, genetic strains that persist in us today. And because of COVID, they were, you know, lots of, um, were doing lots of studies on different types of gene markers that could be like, oh, this could cause a worse outcome if you get infected or this could cause a better outcome if you get infected. And there is, I'm, I think the marker is H12, I can't remember, but from the Neanderthal strain that a lot of people have, and if, they, if you had that marker, the people that got COVID had a much worse time with it than the people that don't have that. And then... Conversely, there was a second part of Neanderthal genetic um, strain that is in fewer people in the population, but it actually helped you get over COVID faster. However, that only was about um, 10% as effective or populated in individuals who had both. So like if you had both, your the bad one would still override the, the good the good benefit but there's like these things that are from you know hundreds of thousands of years ago that still persist in our genome that are going to dictate how we react to viruses today or if old viruses come back that affected those people back then that could affect how our immune system reacts to those viruses if they come back a lot like back online because permafrost melts and other things yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's very interesting because then i mean if you if you think like we didn't get down to just a few thousand people um what are the chances that like our genetics are mixing all the time from all different places so how would we have like healthier stuff because then yeah what if we have holdovers from diseases and then a virus spreads around the globe. So then it obviously doesn't, but do we have airplanes to spread it? So, right, right, right. <laughs> Those hunter gatherer airplanes that we just were like, Hey, yeah, let's just do this. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Well, that's all I've got on this epic evolution journey. Fantastic episode. Good job, Eric. You, you, you sailed us home, right? Right to port. Fabulous. <laughs> well, until Talk next week. Bye.